You can do Nayania Baria, Nayania Manania Manania. You can do Nayania Baria, Nayania Manania. From the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, this is the A Cupper and a Yarn podcast. Yama, and welcome to our brand new podcast, A Cuppa and a Yarn, brought to you by the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council. I'm Michelle Alexandrovix Lovegrove, and it's really great to have you listening in. We know there are plenty of podcasts out there to choose from. The fact that you chose ours means the world to us. I really hope you enjoy this episode because it was a lot of fun to put together. Our first guest is the inspiring doyen of Australian rugby union through a golden era in the early 80s when the Wallabies were just about unbeatable. What we wouldn't give for that type of reputation in this World Cup year, hey? His name is Mark Eller and in many ways his reputation speaks for itself. He was a schoolboy prodigy who pretty quickly found himself in a Wallabies jumper and he made an instant impression. He captained them ten times and most agreed he was the world's best player of his generation. Some say he's one of the greatest rugby players of all time. Not too bad for a bloke who played just 25 tests before he called it quits. We'll explore the reasons why in this fascinating yarn. Mark's led a very interesting life but he never lost his sense of community and his connection to his mob. He's an inspiration to so many people. I really do hope you enjoy this first episode of A Cuppa and a Yarn with the brilliant Mark Eller. Welcome, Mark Eller, to the podcast. Thank you very much, Michelle. And thank you very much for being uh, so gracious as to uh, come trucking into downtown Parramatta on a very cold winter's morning in Sydney. Oh, I just love Parramatta. I couldn't wait to be here. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it's a long way. Living at Larp Roos, we never ever used to come out this far. It was too far to go. Yeah, totally. Well, yeah. you wouldn't, would you? No. What would it take? Oh, an hour and uh, a bit? Yeah, probably even a little, a little bit longer bit. than that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you're up on the central coast of New South Wales now. Yes, that's right. God's country. Is it? <laughs> it's nice and quiet. <laughs> So you've come from a very quiet, uh, beautiful atmosphere into downtown Parramatta, which for uh, any listeners who aren't aware, it's uh, uh, Western Sydney. It's geographically the centre of Sydney and it is absolutely booming. It's burgeoning place. Which is great because half of my family do actually live out in this part of the world. Uh, My older sisters have lived at Mount Druitt and um, Blacktown all over this part of the world. Um, I guess I've always sort of stayed on the coast. Uh, you know, any, anywhere 15, 20 minutes you know, west of the coastline, I start to get a little bit nervous. So yeah, I don't <laughs> tend to come out this way too much these days. Is that because you need a, a fast getaway by sea or what's that about? Yeah, yeah, we're saltwater people, so it's just an excuse. But um, I just uh, you know, love growing up at La Perouse and, um, you know, just it's sort of it's it's a lifestyle that I've grown accustomed to, and uh, you know I'll never move too far away from the coastline. Mm. So you were were you born at La Perouse or nearby, weren't you? Well, we were born um, obviously in the hospital at uh, at uh, Matraville, was it? No, not at Matraville. Uh, you know, in town uh, in Crown Street. Oh, Crown Street Women's Crown Hospital. Street, yeah, Women's yeah. Hospital. Yeah. Uh, I think most of the family were, were born there. Um, so, yeah, something we'll never forget. Being born? 
uh, I've been such a part of a wonderful, crazy family. Absolutely. And it's really interesting you saying, you know, you, you get a bit nervous uh, if you're too far away from the coast. And one of the things that I, I, I did want to ask you, but it's probably not just about land either, it's a question that we, we sort of like to ask people when I've yarned with them, is what does land mean to you? But what does the ocean mean to you? Clearly a lot. Well, the ocean does, because, I mean, um, Dad was a net fisherman. So for six, seven months of the year, Glen, Gary and I in particular, we would have been about seven, eight years old. We used to go and, uh, you know, Dad would sit on the boat half asleep and when the mullet came or the, or the, the schools of brim, you know, my uncle would whistle out and then Glen, Gary and I would race down to grab one side of the net and then Dad would row the boat around with my uncle and they'd pull in the other side of the net. and So it, it, everything I've done, you know, even in, in summer, we used to dive off the, off the, you know, the, the bridge at La Perouse, you know, when the tourists used to come for, you know, one or two cent coins, five cent pieces, you know, just to get enough to, you know, get enough for fish and chips for lunch for us. So everything that we did, my family, you know, my brothers and I in particular, was always around uh, the ocean. Unless it was on a, a Sorry? Football, unless it was on a football field, of course. Unless it was a football field, but yeah, <laughs> again, the, the football field wasn't far away from the ocean either. <laughs> do you have any time to fish anymore? Do you, do you throw a rod out? Oh, I used to. I've I've had boats most of my life. I must admit, I haven't had one for about the last five or six years. My wife keeps on asking me, "When are you going to buy a boat? When are you going to buy a boat?" You're good. And I'm getting around to it. Um, I probably haven't thrown the. Yeah, the hook into the water for about at least a, a year and a half. So, you know, I've got to start moving my backside and get back fishing again. Mm. So if you bought a boat, what would it be? Uh, I've had indoor boats and, and, and outdoor boats, uh, something that obviously can, can do both. Um, you know, I like fishing, I guess, in the lakes, you know, for, for uh, you know, brim and flathead. And then when you go outside, you know, you know snapper and, uh, you know, uh, other other types of fish. So, yeah. well, you should get you should get two and get that boat happening for spring. That'd be nice, eh? Yeah, it'd be nice. Uh, things are not cheap these days. No, well, <laughs> and that's unfortunately, right. I've got a I've got a taste that's taste for boats and fishing rods and things that are probably far too expensive. I can't afford them anymore. Anyway, tell me about it. Down down my home, South Australia, we um, have rivers and lakes so in Nutanjari country and when I go home for some reason I inherited the uh, crown of you know the fishing aunt right and we'd fish on the Murray too um, and so my nieces and nephews they all live right there on the lake and no one takes them fishing it's such a shame so when I come down for a holiday Auntie Michelle Auntie Michelle so we go out but no one's got a boat so it's all just off the beach yeah. or off the pier or, you know, nets, you know, put them out overnight, you know, for yabbies and all that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, it's just fantastic. So, yeah. yeah. So you, you should be the, the fishing uncle. You, you're you back in Lapa quite a bit, aren't you? Yeah. Well, we used to be, our nickname, Glengarry and I was nicknamed Mullet. Yeah. <laughs> because of obviously eating, you know, we used to eat uh, mullet, we used to fry it, bake it. You know, grill it, you know, steam it, everything. Uh, we ate that for probably six six months of the year when the season was going because obviously we with a big family, uh, you know, eating 
eating fish was, was, was just a natural thing for us to do. Yeah. And talking about that family, you're one of 12, aren't you? Yes. I'm one of uh, seven, seven boys and uh, five sisters. Where do you fall in the line? Would you believe my twin brother Glenn and I fall right in the, in the middle. So I've got four older sisters and an older brother, then Glenn and I, then I've got four younger brothers and a younger sister, Marcia. So oh, we're right in the middle. Wow. The middle children. Yes, yes. You know, they, they, they talk about um, uh, middle children sometimes needing to be high achievers so they can be noticed. Do you think that's what happened to uh, no, you? No, <laughs> no. We were, we were fighting amongst ourselves. That's why we achieved so much. <laughs> what was it like um, having, you know, so many siblings growing up? I mean, it so- sounds pretty idyllic, but I'm, I'm sure, you know... 12 kids, it's not easy. Uh, it wasn't that hard. I, I guess when my sisters got a little bit older, they were probably, the mum booted them out or they got married. Um, so I spent a lot of my childhood probably with with uh, my six brothers and my, and my sister Marcia. So Marcia had a room to herself. Mum and dad had a room to themselves. We spent the first five or six years on a, on a mattress in, in, in mum and dad's room until mm. the, my older sisters moved out. And then uh, there were three bunk beds in the back room and that's where the boys, the boys slept. We didn't have room for clothing, cupboards, anything like that. There were just three beds and everything was under the, under the beds. Um, but it was, uh, you never complain because you, know, you didn't know any different. Everything mm. We, mm. we were doing was just natural. and. Uh, but you know, when it used to rain, you know, we had holes in the roof because we had just had you know, tin roofs. We used to move uh, the bunk beds around, not that there was that much room. Uh, we were almost together when it rained. Yeah, uh, strategically placed buckets, all of that. Yes, yeah, exactly. I know, yeah, I know that. I know that too. Yeah, so, but it's about family though. So, I mean, it sounds to me that you, you, you had a place to sleep. You had a loving family. You certainly ate a lot of fresh fish yeah <laughs> you know so so uh a lot of other things are perhaps unnecessary that people are yeah. used to these days yeah you know? we had a, it was an ideal, ideal growing up i mean we were one street off the mission so we had the lesters one side of us they had about seven or eight kids we had the stewards yeah, they had about seven or eight you know, kids uh, you know the simons across the road they had nine children we had the stewards uh or the lesters you know, right next door to us. So, whilst we were, weren't technically on the mission, you know, within you know the five houses, there would have been probably 30, 30 maybe forty children. Yeah. So it was <laughs> so it was a great way to grow up because when everybody said, "Hey, let's have a game of touch football," there was twenty aside. You know, let's let's you know play marbles. There was you know everywhere. So everything in 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 the early days was uh, you know competitive. Mm. You know, naturally, it was sort of we, we wanted to be the best and we always uh, had opportunities to, to test our, our, our ability against our next-door neighbours. Mm. Do you think that sort of atmosphere you were saying, 20 aside, you know, if someone wanted to kick a ball around, was that how you sort of moved in to yeah, that's, that's, it, it sort of melded all of us. I mean, um, you know, my older brother played for South Sydney, you know, Paul Simon across the road, he played... Uh, Representative football, you know, Charlie Lester next door played Australian schoolboy rugby with us. So, uh, you know, Marcia played, represented Australia at netball. So, you know, out of that little area, uh, you know, 
we achieved a lot, and I think it was all because of uh, our growing up. Mm. Now I read that um, you were you were certainly down in that area, etc. And I've I've forgotten the fellow's name, Jeff Mold. Jeff Mold, yes. Yeah. So tell me about that. That sort of rugby started. He spotted you and just went, ooh. Well, what happened? Um, obviously, when we went to high school, uh-huh. uh, for some stupid reason, rather than you know, Matchville High was in the you know strength of, in the middle of the South Sydney the Rabbitohs mm. and about five or six years before we got to Matchville High Jeff Mould as a rugby nut kicked rugby league out of the sports curriculum and uh, introduced rugby union so when we went to Matchville High we didn't have a choice uh, we could have played soccer or football but you know coming from a league background we were never going to do that so you know, we we played <laughs> hang on coming from a league background we were never going to do that <laughs> yeah we wanted to play. We wanted to play league, but we couldn't. Yeah. Wow. So you just had to play union. So we had to play union. So we would never play in union to represent Australia or achieve anything. It was it was a Wednesday sport. So we played it. Obviously, for the years that we were at, uh, at Matchville High. Then uh, after a couple of years, we played a, a Saturday rugby competition. We went to the I think St George area and played played junior rugby union there. Uh, and then we'd, but we always played rugby rugby league on the Sunday, mm. um, and just as things evolved, uh, we were probably good at both. But um, you know, Gary, in particular, he captained South Sydney League's you know, junior rugby league teams up against his uh, our cousin Steve Ellop, who was obviously at Parramatta. Um, uh, but for over the, the last couple of years, particularly, we just sort of evolved and. Yeah, started getting selected for uh, you know, rugby teams, mm. and yeah, the rest is history. Did you love it though? You must have loved it. Or well, what, what was there a time when it became more than that Wednesday no, sport was, no, thing? It was, it was always the love of the sport, uh, yeah. even rugby league. Um, we enjoyed rugby because uh, you know with the rucks and malls, the game never stopped, and uh, yeah, we made a rule amongst ourselves that we were never going to kick it. You know, rugby can be the world's greatest game, but could be almost always be the world's most boring game, depending on the way you wanted to play it. And we made a, a commitment amongst ourselves that we were never going to get bored. You know, we were going to play running football. And in our back line, you know, the seven back line players, we had six Indigenous players. Mm. And uh, Reddit had made at the back, you know, Greg Stores on the wing, you know, we became known as the, the black line with the red tip. <laughs> um, and that's just the way we played. It was sort yeah. of, and it was it, in the early days. It was a bit of a circus because there wasn't too many Indigenous rugby union players, and, and I think a lot of the spectators, particularly from the opposition teams, came to us to came to watch our games because they were curious to mm. see what these black fellas are like. Mm. And they certainly got shown, didn't they? Oh yeah, we <laughs> went through the last couple of years undefeated, smashed everybody. Um, you know, got selected in Australian schoolboys, five of us from Matchville High, and you know, four of them were Indigenous. I'm Michelle Alexandrovitz Lovegrove. I'm speaking with uh, Mark Eller, and we'll be back after the break. Land Council members, are your contact details up to date? Have you moved home recently? Got a new post office box? Are you even sure that your address, your phone number, maybe your email address has been entered into the members' registry correctly? Well, there's only one way to be certain, and now's the best time to do it. 
The Newswell collection is coming up soon on November 30. So having your contact details up to date has never been more important. Contact your lab today. It might just save you a lot of hassle tomorrow. We're speaking with the uh, legendary Mark Eller on the podcast today, and I, I know you can't see his very handsome face, but he rolled his eyes at me. <laughs> oh, God. You know, one thing that's always struck me about you, uh, Mark, uh, from you know the, the time I've known you and is certainly sort of in, in working in media together, etc. as well, is, you know, you've had such a, it's such a big life, huge life, but you're so... You know, you're just really chill. You're very grounded. You're very good day. You know, hasn't hasn't gone to your head, has it? Uh, oh, not my really. Bro- my brothers probably say it has, but <laughs> <laughs> but when you come again, when you come from big families, it's real, isn't it? If you it? get a big head, you'll get hit over the head by <laughs> one of your older sisters or your older brothers. So, so we were always uh, very grounded. I mean, we were. Uh, you talk about you know been successful but I've got two brothers and I've got a, um, a younger sister who also achieved so much I've got mm. you know my, my older sisters you know they became teachers you know they were well educated you know they worked hard um, you know, from big family you know, my mother and father you know gave everything that they had for their children and so there wasn't any room to, for big being a big head mm. What about, um, and this was something that uh, I was very curious about, across the sort of late 70s into the early 80s with you, I mean, you were performing at such a high standard. Um, Your playing, you know, was amazing. What what do they say? Uh, What have we got here? He's going to roll his eyes at me again, 100%. He was the Stradivarius of the flat attack and provided a new dimension to the running game. Ella possessed a near telepathic reading of a game, an uncanny ability to keep the ball alive and near faultless positional play when in support. Mm. That's huge. Yeah, I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. He didn't write it. He just uh, just paid a few paid a few buckaroonies to yeah, the person that's who right. did. That's right. He was a beautifully balanced runner, blessed with a superb change of pace, who ghosted his way around the field to set up countless memorable tries. I mean. What you were talking about, sort of not having a big head or anything like that, and I, I, I hear you. You know, eleven siblings and your parents, and certainly extended families. Well, you'd get, you know, brought back to earth pretty quickly. What does it feel like, though, to read that sort of stuff about yourself? Um, it's it's nice to to read, to read it, of course to hear it about is. It, but I don't worry about it. Like, I, you know, mm. I, I, I don't dwell on it. Um, mm. What I did with my brothers was was instinctive. Um, like I said before, we wanted to enjoy the game rather than sort of, you know, being bored on, on the rugby field. And I guess my role in, in the position I was in was to actually, you know, control the game. Mm. And I guess I was a bit lucky. I, I could analyse in the opposition within 10 or 15 minutes. Mm. I could change our strategy within those 10 or 15 minutes to, you know, to make sure that where the, well, the, the, the weaknesses in the opposition were exploited very, very quickly. Mm. Um, and, you know, when we had the ball, it was always to keep it alive because it was fun. I mean, we played at such a fren- frenetic pace that it was just, it was outrageous. And, you know, we caught the ball, you know, we, we hardly dropped the ball. It was just, it was like a circus. It was just so much fun. And, you know, particularly a lot of the, 
well, all the you know the non-indigenous players, which were about 99% of them, just didn't know how to handle us. So we <laughs> took these guys by surprise. I mean, you know, it wasn't for my brothers. It was Lloydie Walker who also represented Australia. You know, uh, Kevin Longbottom on the wing. He was just a freak. You know, it wasn't just the three of us. Or it was there was the six or seven of us that really took the game apart. Mm. I remember, you know, playing rugby for Randwick and, you know, I had my number 10 on, so everybody oh. knew it was me, and Glenn had 15, but swap. I, I, then Glenn, because I used to be, do most of the running, I used to sort of swap positions, and even then, you know, Norman May would just, even though Glenn had his 15, it was, he was playing 5'8", and, oh, what a great move by Mark Eller. <laughs> he's a great footballer. He's got, he's got 15 on his back, so he knows he's Glenn. You know, everybody knows he's Glenn, but you know, uh, Norman May didn't care. You know, if, if, if it was either Mark or Glenn playing at 5'8", and playing well, you know, it that's the way matter. it was. Yeah. How'd that work with girls? Um, Did, you, you didn't. You didn't. You know how they they often talk about sort of twins and you know. No, nah, 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 you. I had a couple of girls used to say, "You haven't rang me." I said, "What do you mean I haven't rang you?" I said, "I don't know you." I said, "Yes, you do. You know me. You, you're Mark, aren't you?" I said, "Yeah." Well, I said, "I said, oh, Glenn, that dirty <laughs> bastard. He's taking out girls and he's using my name <laughs> just in case things I'm go joking. wrong." He wasn't <laughs> Just in case things go wrong, oh, yeah, Mark, call me. <laughs> That's right. Oh, we used to have a bit of fun. We were cheeky. Little black kids, you're always going to have fun. Absolutely. In the midst of all of this, though, um, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but um, talking about girls, how did you have time? Did you have time for, for girlfriends girls? or anything? Girls? Not, or not really? Across uh, those years, not much time? No, not really. It was yeah. football. I think we started going out with our girlfriends and wives now because they yeah. were all our girlfriends ended up being our wives <laughs> uh, probably in the last year or two at school. Yeah, okay. But before that, no, it was just sport. Yeah, it was all sport. It was all sport. Special women, though, to uh, I think I think any well, not not just wives, but husbands too, of elite athletes. You know, performing at, at um, uh, such a major level to, you know, be cool with the time because yeah. it, it's your life. It's 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 a vocation, yeah, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, I know. With my wife Kim, yeah, we wanted to get married, but I was playing football, so mm. we had no time and. Um, and probably Glenn and Gary probably did the same with with Kerry and Julie. Their their, their wives, you know, mm. they just had to unfortunately sit back and, and wait for us to do our thing. Um, when I retired in 1984, yeah, I was away for probably five months all up. Mm. Came back, got married a week later. I yeah, because I was actually giving you know, the the game away. Glenn and Gary at that stage were probably were married. Uh, I wasn't that far behind it, but you know. Sport does take up a lot of time, particularly when you reach the high levels. You got to you, you got to give a lot of effort to it. And unfortunately, you know the, the spouses are you know you've got to wait, and, and they did, and they're lovely ladies, all all three of them. And it's not only the time too. I guess it, it's you know it, that time includes the training, etc. But um, what about uh, food? What about eating? That that sort of whole lifestyle across that period. Did you follow any sort of particular diet or no, we you just ate no anything diet, you wanted? So again, growing up at La Perouse, La we yeah. had a combustion stove. So Mum used to cook the porridge on the mm-hmm. stove. You know, we used to. Uh, 
and then she cooked baked dinners every Sunday. Um, some there nice. was never any any rule on what we ate. I mean, when you come from family twelve, you, you just you, eat what you, you eat what you got, and uh, <laughs> there wasn't an, an option of saying, "Can I? I don't like it." You, yeah. If you didn't like it, you didn't eat. Mm. So, mm. mum and dad, uh, I guess mum particularly, we always ate good food, fresh food, and. Yeah, obviously, Dad being a fisherman, we always had the freshest fish. Mm. Yeah, so we we couldn't complain. Mm. Now you you spent some time, and I know that you you've spoken about him in the past. Um, as a Wallabies coach, was Alan Jones. Yep. I'm just curious because I mean I've I've had you know as many people have I guess years later when he got into media. Um, and well, and certainly when he started working at 2UE, I was um, I was a bubby there, and I've got a couple of funny stories about that. But what was he like? What what was it like with him as him as a coach? Uh, he was interesting. He yeah. was very opinionated. Yeah. Um, he was very determined for success. Um, I don't think he he probably slept two or three hours a day, mm. uh, a night. Sorry. Mm. Uh, he was just obsessed with success so I was he coached the, the Wallabies in 1984 the last year I played um, we had a our relationship was up and down so to speak you know I I guess the first thing he did when he took over from Australian cap, Australia with the Wallabies was drop me as captain mm-hmm. but in reality he was probably done me a big favour because I was probably a little bit blase at that time um, but he, but he knew what it was. We played a, a, a test series against New Zealand, the uh, the Bledisloe Cup, and we lost that series. And you know, I was pretty upset the way we played in the last test match. And I actually went to Alan Jones and I said, "We got a, we got a Grand Slam tour coming up in in a couple of months. If you don't make me, well, I'm not captain. I understand that. But if you don't let me control the game, we will not win this." Mm-hmm. And Jones, you could have said, "Thanks, Mark. Bugger off." Mm-hmm. Um, particularly because we had a young up-and-coming number 10 from Queensland called Michael Liner, who wasn't a bad footballer, so I was probably under pressure myself just to hold my position. But he listened, and you know I controlled most of the game plan um, on that tour, and you know we won the Grand Slam, the only Australian side to have won a Grand Slam, mm-hmm. even to this date. Mm. Uh, and I, I guess I owe a lot of that to to Alan for his faith in, in my ability. But if you say he's, he's very focused on success, I know a, a lot of success is, I mean, it's hard work, it's also strategy. So uh, one thing I do know about him is that he's a very good strategist. So. Oh, he is. He, 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 that's why he doesn't sleep. Yeah. He, you know, he wants to be perfect at everything he, he does. Um I don't know how he does it, but he does it. And uh, that's why he's on the big bucks now. And you know, mm. We're struggling, man. You know. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. But at least at least we get to sit sit in uh, yes. a lovely... Yes, Parramatta and enjoy, this, enjoy yeah. the coffees. Do you want another coffee, actually? Yeah, I wouldn't mind one. That'd be okay. great. Okay, well, we'll just go grab a quick cuppa and we'll be back. Thanks for listening to the all-new Cuppa and a Yarn podcast brought to you by the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council. We love being able to bring you the inspirational stories and tales of all the brilliant people making such a key contribution to Aboriginal affairs right across this great state of ours. There's lots more to come. We'd hate for you to miss out, so hit subscribe and be sure to tell your mob. Now, back to today's yarn. 
Sorry if I'm rambling on a bit. No, you're not rambling. I love it. No, it's great. It's okay. really, really good. All right. I'd just like to mark on the podcast that Mark Ella has said to me, I'm sorry for rambling. <laughs> Thanks, Michelle. You're a storyteller. Yeah. Don't you think? I've had an interesting career. So there's, I've done, like I said before, lots and lots. So I could probably talk for hours if... I've got just a little list here, and I, you know, I was just sort of dividing it up by years, and it was just, it's just a so potted history, and it does not include everything. Mm. Just looking at it, I just went, God, and then I started feeling really bad about myself. <laughs> I'm like, holy hell! I'll have to have a look at that myself. Yeah, here you go. Have a little, have a little look. It's missing a lot, I know, but it was, it was enough of an overview. So, listeners, there's a list. I've just said 77 selected to play in the Australian Rugby Scoreboard team, 79-84 ran rugby, blah, 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 with spelling errors. Through, I only got to 2005 and we're in 2019 uh, because then you, you called me because yeah. you were here. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's pick up on that. Post-2005, you know, the, the, end, the end of my list... You're still chair of the Aboriginal Cricket Association, aren't you? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good? Is it good it's, being involved? Yeah, it's good to be involved because I used to play, my brothers and I used to play a lot of cricket. Um, mm. I probably, you know, can be involved a little bit more, but, yeah, you just don't get the opportunity. Um, you know, we're trying to encourage, or Cricket Australia, and trying, trying to encourage more uh, more Indigenous uh, sports people to, to play cricket um, and we've got a few at the moment but we can there's a lot more talent out there mm. so is that something that you uh, keep your eyes peeled here and there for people no, you, you're not, not really a spotter no, no. I'm, not a, I'm not a selector I'm, no. I'm just sort of like a, an executive that's trying you know help the funding and, and, and obviously the, make sure that Indigenous communities get the right uh, the right training and things like that you know, I've, uh, I don't know if you noted down there that I took a, an Aboriginal cricket side to oh. England in 1988. Um, I did read that you actually did that. Yeah, well, I went to a meet, just a meeting mm. and walked out of that meeting as chairman of the <laughs> Aboriginal cricket, <laughs> as you normally do. This is what happens when you can't say no, is it? Yeah, that? <laughs> that's right. And then we, uh, obviously, we took a, took a team uh, across to England, uh, Wales, uh, Jersey uh, for five weeks. It was just unbelievable. Took took the guys to Buckingham Palace. Oh wow! Yeah, we uh, you know played at Lords, you know the Holy Grail of uh, of, of Test cricket. And I remember we even watched uh, the West Indies on the fourth day defeat defeat um, England at Lords. We were obviously spectators, and you know I said, okay, let's catch the bus. And the guy said, no, Mark. <laughs> We're going to meet the West Indies. I said, "How mm. the hell are we going to meet the West Indies? They've just beaten England at Laws on the fourth day. We are not going to meet the West Indies cricket team." I said, "Yeah, but you're Mark Ella. You can, <laughs> you can ask him." And I went, "Oh Christ, okay." So you did. So we went, knocked on the door. They were all lined up. All these black fellas were lined up behind me. Knocked on the door. The security guy come down and said, "What do you want?" I said, "I want to talk to the West Indies uh, team manager." He said, okay, you know, he had a look and all these, you know, Aboriginal kids were behind me. And so the manager came down and I said, you know, I introduced myself and who we were. And I said, what are the chances of um, 
you know, coming up and meet the West Indies cricket team. And he looked at it and said, yeah, man, come up. And we were up there for a couple of hours sort of talking and meeting the players. And what I, I should have guessed, because a lot of the professional cricket in those days was basically all in England. And so a lot of the West Indies mm. lived in, in you know, Clive Lloyd and you know, Viv Richards and you know, mm. Malcolm Marshall, all those guys. And so, you know, we're getting signatures off of them and they wanted me to, I was signing signatures for them because, you know, they also watch their rugby. (laughs) 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 It was just crazy. Yeah. Now, I've got, I've actually got a photo here. So, um, people, I've got a, uh, printed off a photo for Mark of yourself and so that's Courtney Walsh? Courtney Walsh, yes. So, um, so they're, they're both here, both looking very dapper, holding boomerangs. That was in. That would have been in Australia, though, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was in 1995. Oh uh, hell! Okay. Again, part of my long history of sport. I in 1995, I had a marketing company, and I got a phone call from the West Indies, mm. from Jamaica, and saying that, uh, "Hey, man, we need a sponsor, Mark. Can you help us?" And I went, uh, "Yeah, maybe." And, and I thought they were joking, but they were the real McCoy. They'd rang all the way from the West Indies to to me to look after them, to try and get a sponsor. So I rang John Singleton, who was a friend of mine. Singer then you know, got into KFC. Um, and so I then became the commercial manager of the West Indies on their tour of Australia in 1995. And, mm. and that alone was some of the funniest things that I've ever done. You know, Besides you know, doing the, the run... During the KFC run, when they, when they were here, I had to go get boxes of KFC and drop them outside their room, and and then arguing with the manager Clive Lloyd about uh, Curtly Ambrose, you know, wouldn't say, you know, Wendy's kids are Whitby's kids, <laughs> and so I used to, you know, the, you know, at, at, at lunchtime in the Sydney Test match, I'm arguing with one of the greatest cricketers ever uh, about one of their players who will refuse to, you know, do what was right, yeah. and so. We got there and I got a lot of the young production assistants, lovely young girls, to tell Curtly Ambrose how lovely he was and whatever. And, oh, and then the first take... You butted him up. The first take, Windy's kids were Whitby's kids. Oh. <laughs> and so we got around it. But, yeah, so it was great. So I really enjoyed you know, travelling around Australia with, with the West Indies cricket team. How long were they in town for? Oh, probably about three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was, it would have been a while. Yeah. yeah. And you were clearly introducing them to yes. a bit of culture. Did you? So they're here with their brandishing boomerangs. Did you throw them? Do yes. You, do you, you did. Yes, we, we threw them. Yes. <laughs> I'm Michelle Alexandrovitz Lovegrove. I'm here speaking with uh, rugby legend Mark Eller. We're now in 2019. Life goes on. How, how long have you been in media for now? Um, Just wondering. It's been I, a while, eh? I started in media... When I retired, so probably even about 1985. I, I oh, right. So I started uh, working for the ABC mm-hmm. uh, with Gordon mm-hmm. Bray, calling the rugby, which which was fun. And then uh, probably a year later, I started writing for the Australian. That was in 1986. So what's that? 20, 30 years, virtually. So and I'm still no. writing. You're still um, writing. Then obviously then from eight years ago working for NL TV, mm. uh, which was which is still great. Uh, so yeah, I've been in and around the media for a long time now. Mm. How does that sort of translate? I mean, you, you, you get to look at uh, sport, 
the sport you, sports you love, etc., through a different lens now. What's that like? Uh, it was good for about the first 30 years, but I'm probably <laughs> getting a little bit older now. Yeah. So sport is still important, but it's not the end. Sure. Uh, I probably, where I used to you know, love my rugby, rugby league, you know, I used to watch every ball bowled in cricket. Mm. You know, mm. I'd probably do it every now and again now. So, um, you know, my time at NITV, uh, you know, I was executive producer of, you know, shows like with Ernie Dingo, um, you know, cultural shows, cover NADOC and, and, and all obviously important Indigenous events. Mm. Um, so it's been a been a, a great experience, particularly coming from um, sport in, into the media. It sort of there was a natural fit and uh, sometimes you may not be the greatest cameraman or greatest editor or, or director. My role is to manage people. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've done all my life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think people sometimes don't, uh, may forget, I think, some of the skills that you perfect as a player and then you, you, you sort of naturally move into into other areas as well. What do they say? Uh, translates well yeah. into other areas. So, you know, I, I'd imagine for you, like, it's sort of mentorship and inspiration. Well, it is. I mean, sport did do a lot for me and, and, and you, know, you talk about mentoring and that's exactly what, it, what it's like you've got to you've got to work with people you've got to understand their problems you've got to understand what what it takes to make them better players or better better employees it's, mm. it's they're very similar now i know we talked about this a little earlier and i know i'm just going to put myself up there for the punishment you know where i'm going yeah i think i do it's called israel <laughs> falau <laughs> what do you want to know about israel well Look, I, I understand. I know, you know, they're in the Fair Work Commission now. It's uh, a situation that's going to go on for ages. I mean, we, we talked about it before. Please please don't be cranky with me. What's happening now is ruining, ruining rugby. I mean, yeah. rugby, rugby union in this country yeah. was, was going backwards anyway, but now it's on a, a free-fall, basically. Mm. You know, Israel Folau has got his rights, I guess, and, and he's, you know, obviously a devout Christian, but, you know... There's some things you, you can't say. You can't bring the game in your know, your repute. And he's been warned once, mm, uh, yeah. you know, not to not to I guess say what he's what he's been saying. And, and now he's come out again, and it's just sort of dragging on. This will go on forever, and you know, it'll cost everybody millions of dollars. But the biggest loser, I guess, will be Australian Rugby Union because it, you know Israel is definitely divided. Mm. Um, the fan base, those that are Christians, that are not necessarily non-Christians, but just those that probably just want to get on, you know, they mm. want to enjoy this sport. Mm. And now, you know, in terms of rugby, that can't happen. I've seen it move from about freedom of speech to religion to a mix of both, you know, someone's right to freedom of speech. And, and, that's, and that's not just about Israel Folau either, you know, it's about when does freedom of speech become not that it's it's very interesting in this yeah. day of you know social media where you'll say something and then depending on who you are within yeah well, it's a fine line and particularly yeah. with his profile yeah you, you're gonna you're gonna gain interest people mm. are gonna say something they're gonna respond um, and it's like i said i mean you know i read the you know the tweets and you know some of them are outrageous some of them are crazy mm. a lot of them are vindictive you know it's just 
just divided the Australian community, mm. literally. Mm. For you in your entire career, I mean, I you know, I, I did a bit of Googling. I mean, I know you as Mark. And to be honest, I'd never really done an internet search on you before. Yeah. I know you've probably had your controversial moments and all that sort of stuff, but you've never been someone who has from what I can see, behaved with respect and grace, pretty yeah. much, to, you know, or, or spoken about anybody in a... Yeah, well, that was, I guess, our upbringing. Yeah. You know, you've got to respect everybody and everybody's got an opinion. Um, I think my only real dig that I had was probably Alan Jones. <laughs> <laughs> and that oh, was... Right. Uh, I learned very quickly <laughs> that you don't do that... You don't do it twice. <laughs> nah. <laughs> and, and thankfully, Alan... Uh, put up with me in those early days but uh, now we're good friends. That's good to hear and look as far as um, Falau aside and what's happening with the game and how people are feeling at the moment what about the rest of the year uh, as far as that goes in, in terms of rugby in this country? Well we've got a World Cup coming up yeah. soon yep. um, yeah. you know we've got a, got a coach that uh, needs help mm. uh, we've got players that need help mm. so I'm not saying rugby's in total disarray, but I don't think it's far from it. So we've just got to get our act together. We've just got to knuckle down and work hard. We've got five test matches before the World Cup. You know, we need to do reasonably well. The unfortunate part is I don't think we know our best team, and that's always been an issue with me because I think, you know, Michael and I, you know, played together at Ramick. I get on pretty well with him, but he's just got to stick with his best 15 or, mm. or best 23 players. And hopefully that they can, you know, deliver the goods. Disarray is a strong word. Uh, you said close to. Well, it is close to disarray. A lot of, if you talk to any rugby fan, are they happy with the state of Australian rugby? And you know, not even talking about Israel Folau. Yeah. I'd say seven out of ten would probably say that they're not happy. Whether we got the right coaches, whether we got the right players, whether we're playing the right style of football, whether yeah, we, okay. you know, we got the right selectors, everything's questionable. There's mm. there's not one one player who would walk into you know the Wallaby side. Mm. You know, in my day, you know, would have probably there were probably half a dozen players that would have walked in, you know, mm. without hesitation. You know, now, you know, the, I, th- I think the coach and the selectors will probably you know look at every position and. and and hopefully pick the right player. Where before, you know, as I said before, you know, half a dozen would have been the key to mm. winning mm. the key to the or the core of the Wallabies, and then the other nine, nine or ten would be um, um, you know, players that you, you hope could deliver. Mm. Like with yourself, I've got to ask the question though, and you, you're going to probably he's probably going to roll his eyes at me. Do you kick a ball about at all? No, no, no. 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 I I watch rugby on television I probably don't go too many live games so yeah, yeah. I'll probably go to a couple of the test matches but I'm not as active or enthusiastic about rugby as I used to be well life moves on you know you, you're at you're at a different point in your life you're are you grandfather no I've got a daughter that, <laughs> daughter that's getting married in Sweden next oh. June and the son oh, congratulations. is still looking for a girlfriend He'll find one sooner or later. Yeah, he'll find someone. He'll just say, my dad's Mark Heller. (laughs) These days days I'll say, Mark who? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. You'll be surprised. You'll be surprised how many uh, younger generation Mm. who actually aren't rugby fans as such know your name. I'm just just telling you. So other things replace that. Your career's 
moved in the media direction has been for some time now. You're still living in the beautiful central coast. So what do you do? You, you kick back on weekends. Do you garden? Do you play golf? Do you... Uh, well, gardening, all practical things. Um, mm. I guess I'm making up for a lot of lost time. <laughs> like my wife, <laughs> yeah. which I spent most of my life away, at least half of it, yeah. sort of doing other crazy things. So I'm, I'm, I'm content now. I don't. Uh, my wife thinks that I'm antisocial because I don't like talking to people, um, and she's probably right to a certain extent. I try and avoid, you know, particularly on weekends when I'm just my spare time. Yeah, I just rather spend it with her and, you know, and mm. friends. Mate, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And it's just really lovely uh, hearing you, you know, sharing some of your life and particularly um, about the mullet. I'm a mullet have, person. I'm a mullet. But we used to have the long hair with the mullets. Yeah. <laughs> we had everything. <laughs> we had the mullets. We ate the mullets. So we have Koorong mullets yeah, down yeah. from where I'm from. Yeah. So um, I get very jealous when I see uh, pictures of my relatives cooking up Koorong <laughs> mullet down. I'm just like, damn it, I'm in Sydney. You know? yeah. But anyway, look, thanks, Mark. Thanks, Michelle. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. See ya. Right. You can do Nayania Baria, Nayania Manania Manania. You can do Nayania Baria, Nayania Manania. From the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, this is the A Copper and a Yarn podcast.